So, so if if tomorrow all of the challenges miraculously, you know, got solved, you would still be looking for the dark cloud in the of sky. Of course, of course. Man, that's just me. Okay, that's we're, just we're me. We're gonna grant you. We're gonna grant you a special title on the next episode or something that like that when we have you on. Uh, sort of like the the bringer of doom or something like that. It would be fun. See, I like that. I like that. It's just so much. You better. like that? Oh my god! It's so much better. Welcome to another episode, our second regular episode of the World in Perspective. My name is Cameron Vasquez. I am your host today. Joining me from Rome is Lucrezia Ducci, and in Seattle, Washington, is Callum Houston. And then joining us all the way from Aligarh in Uttar Pradesh, India, is Saman Kidwai. Hey guys, how are you doing? Hi. I didn't think you'd get my surname right. You keep surprising me, Mel. Every day. <laughs> Like, I was hoping you'd get it wrong and we'd have it as part of the bloopers, but I don't think that's going to happen. Oh, wow. Gee, thanks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <right>. <laughs> you guys excited for the podcast? Yay. Very excited. Very excited. This is a whole new cast for our second episode. This is a whole new subject. Today, we're going to be talking about the Arab Spring 10 years on and the implications it's had across the region and around the world. Um, as well as on foreign actors. But before we get to all of that, since it is a whole new cast, why don't you introduce yourselves to the entirety of the, the universe? Because everyone will be tuning into this podcast, and you know that. So, Lucrezia, oh, yeah. I'm picking on you first. Why don't you introduce <laughs> yourself to the viewers, tell them a little bit about yourself, and how you wrote maybe a piece a couple of days ago, or hours, really, published. <laughs> Okay, about the Arab Spring, you mean? Yeah, of course. I, I thought about the one for the International Scholar on the, on the <laughs> Western <laughs> conflict. But um, yeah, I am Lucrezia. I, I live in Rome. I study security risk management in Copenhagen. Uh, and I am interested about the politics in the MENA in the Middle East and North Africa. So uh, yes, I have written an article which came out like a few hours ago about the Arab Spring, but I'm... Uh, I'm excited to expand the issue further in this podcast. And we'll have a link to that in the description for this episode. Joining us in Seattle, as I said, is Callum. Callum, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? Tell us all about your fishing habits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a pretty irregular schedule where I kind of disappear off the face of the earth for about six weeks in the middle of summer, and then I show back up. But yeah, I'm a program associate here for the Middle East North Africa program. My focus is the Levant generally, kind of Eastern Mediterranean, maybe a little more generally. Um, but I've spent most of my time in uh, Lebanon and Palestine. So I guess my expertise is kind of emanates from there. Excited to talk about the Arab Spring with you guys today. So I'm Summer and I work as a research assistant with a PVCR program. I'm also working as a research associate with Ricina House. And the reason why I'm so excited for this podcast is because we're doing an entire feature on Arab Spring at Ricina House. And we're coming out with articles, you know, looking at each five countries, you know, from entirely different perspectives. So I think this will be a very entertaining night or early hours of the morning here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think we could kind of dive right into it, but I want to kind of remind... Uh, listeners who may not focus specifically on the Middle East, um, you know, what exactly sparked the events 10 years ago that led to, you know, mass uprisings across the region. So, Lucrezia, you want to kind of sort of refresh everybody's memory, what was going on in late 2010 and early 2011? Yeah, of course. Well, the first episode of the Arab Spring is, uh, has been the uh, fact that a guy named Mohammed was easy, if I pronounce it right. Uh, he he uh, put himself on fire. He was uh, selling food and vegetables. And uh, that was our reaction uh, in response to the harsh condition in which Tunisia uh, was at the time. Uh, and that has been the first episode of the Arab Spring. And Tunisia afterwards um, experienced the so-called Jasmine Revolution. Is it called like that in English? I'm not sure. Jasmine Revolution, mm -hmm. right? Um, and the uh, revolution which happened in Tunisia soon uh, um, 
expanded throughout all the region uh, and it had, I would say, all the Arab countries because even though some states have not experienced it to the same extent, it has been mostly because the protests have been repressed with uh, more force. Uh, I'm talking mostly about the Gulf states, but the Arab Spring in itself has united different uh, components of the Arab civil society from very different backgrounds, ranging from uh, feminists to Islamists, seculars and liberalists. And uh, it can be defined uh, as a moment of peoplehood. And uh, the main characteristic was the fact that broad bottom-up protesters were motivated by demands for more democracy, uh, they were pushing for human dignity and uh, human rights, and they were protesting against corrupt against corrupted administration. So the the the, the fact is that it it was not uh, only in Tunisia, and that's the reason why it spread across the region. So uh, on the ground, it seemed unstoppable, specifically for the travel it made uh, through the other countries. So. Um, a lot of consequences uh, stem from the from the Arab Spring. Uh, well, the term Arab Spring in itself it 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 has been given by, if I don't go wrong, a, a political advisor for uh, foreign policy to indeed um, signal the fact that it has not been a single episode, but something that spread all over the region. And uh, uh, it can be argued that it's still not over in the sense that uh, if we look at the democratic. Uh, uh, challenges that the country had to face after the the, the period 2010-2012, we can see that uh, the protests never actually uh, got to an end on one, on one hand. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I remember, at least, and I remember reading, reading a few different pieces of scholarship in like 27-2018, and people were hypothesizing like, oh, why, you know, why hasn't Algeria or Lebanon or Iraq or Sudan or whatever um, experienced the same kind of Arab Spring as, as, as like the main countries affected, such as Tunisia, Libya, Syria, Yemen, etc. It was like, oh, no, that was very much coming, right? 2019, we saw, we saw like literally these countries. But I remember everyone, oh, yeah, like the youth bulges is one thing. Oh, no, it's like they've experienced political violence in their past. So like they're immune to that now. It's like, nope, this is this is a totally, totally region wide uh, commonly felt like phenomena there you really can't uh stop it i mean what we're seeing in algeria was so beautiful i remember like looking at the early footage of it all i mean yeah so i just want yeah it it's, comes in fits and bursts but it's definitely not isolated to just a few countries in the middle east would you agree with that all simone i i do and i think a lot of people have sort of uh viewed iraq as you know separate from the way that uh say tunisia or syria uh, were affected because those were the countries that gained a lot of prominence across uh, the media outlets but iraq did uh experience widespread protests people do did set themselves on fire in iraq as well they were protesting against uh very similar issues, corrupt, widespread corruption. There were, uh, they didn't have access to adequate uh, healthcare services, education, employment opportunities. So the situation wasn't very different in Iraq. It's just that it was overshadowed by what was happening in Tunisia because it was the first major revolution in uh, the wider MENA region. And then the war in Syria breaks out. So that kind of uh, overshadowed everything that was happening in Iraq. But that was equally important, I feel. And I think besides all these causes I mentioned, other, one of the um, other major causes that uh, people forced people to take, you know, go out into the streets was the fact that uh, Iranian influence was somehow becoming so deeply embedded in Iraq that they now began viewing it as an encroachment of Iraqi sovereignty and they no longer wanted to put, wanted to put up with it. And for example, uh, when calls were raised for Nouri al-Maliki's resignation, I think one of the major reasons why uh, that just spiraled up was the fact that he had bowed down before Iran, basically. It surrendered a lot of the Iraqi sovereignty in front of Iran and uh, did nothing to protect Iraq. And then there was the rise of sectarian divisions because of which we saw the rise of ISIS and then the whole catastrophe that followed. But with Tunisia, when we're talking about uh, Mohamed Bouazizi, I think in a lot of ways, Tunisia has come full circle in that aspect because people who have been out of job for a couple of years are yet again setting themselves on fire as a means to uh, you know, express their grievances, to display how frustrated they are 
but all this idea, uh, talk about self-immolation, I feel, has to be contextualized within uh, w the fact that Tunisia is largely an Islamic country, and within Islam, suicide is not taken upon very kindly because it's frowned upon. It's an unforgivable act in the eyes of God. And the fact that people are still going ahead and doing it just displays how frustrated they are even a decade after the revolution. I mean, the unemployment rate has only risen much more than what it was when uh, Mohammed Bouazizi died. So, um, I mean, we celebrate uh, the Tunisian example because it's a rare example, right? It was able to transition from authoritarianism to democracy and a multi-party democracy at that, and it has been able to sustain that momentum. But the fact of the matter is that what the reason why people took to the streets was the lack of socioeconomic opportunities. That was a central focus that uh, defined the Jasmine Revolution and all other revolutions across the MENA region. And that is what has been sidelined uh, within Tunisia as well. We talk about corruption. We talk about patron-client relationships and nepotism that still reign supreme. Those are the primary uh, you know, qualifications now in Tunisia, really, that's sort of a continuity to get a job that you want, to get admitted into a good university. Your education your uh, professional qualifications do not matter in Tunisia. And the fact that uh, a lot of the elites, I think what they've done is that they co-opted the revolution to sort of consolidate their own power and influence. And so the areas where they reside in, say, such as Tunis, are far more prosperous than other pro uh, regions such as the Kasserine governorate. Now, if you compare the poverty levels, uh, poverty levels in Tunisia would be about 9%, and in Kasserine government, it would be 32%. So that's such a wide disparity out there. That just, goes to far how, that just goes to show that nothing really has been done to address the very uh, causes that force people to take to the streets and overthrow a dictator who had been in power for more than two decades. Yeah, and um, uh, it's, it's, I guess Lebanon was the country I paid the most attention to. And in this kind of second round of protesting, it was interesting to see how the protests kind of evolved as well uh, from pre, honestly, pre Beirut port explosion until, uh, and then to post, like, whereas before it was more like we want a technocratic government and we want, like, uh, we want, um, we want everyone out and we want, we want a new system with better representation. It was still willing to work within the system and, uh, and and debate and compromise whereas after the especially with the combination of the corona the port explosion and the general economic malaise in that country i mean they're gonna run out of dollars in no time now uh it's 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 become so much you know bringing out literal um nooses and pictures of all the politicians like literally you know all of them kilon yani kilon like all means all which, which was there for a while, but it, it became so much more, so much more angry and desperate after the explosion and uh, more uncompromising, I feel. Would you say you agree with that whole kind of interpretation, Lucrezia? Like, I, I, I wanted us to address this topic because often it's kind of misconstrued that the uprisings themselves were specifically political in nature. And a lot of it is socioeconomic or political economic in the terms of, you know, what opportunities there are for people of different socioeconomic strata and of course a lot of that ties into the politics right if you were in those previous authoritarian regimes a lot of the focus was on making sure that the sort of top 10 percent were still satisfied and making sure that that's where most of the money is flowing because that's what's propping up the regime um but if you were in you know sort of below that line there wasn't a lot of upward mobility even um to make it into that privileged 10 percent and so i kind of wanted to get your thoughts on has that changed really um, in the past 10 years, Lucrezia? I mean, in what countries or cases has it changed and has it gotten better? Has it gotten worse? And is this sort of the new generation over 10 years? I mean, you mentioned this before our call that there's been a lot of generational change in how all of these events have been viewed as well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, first of all, I think that it has been a democratic uh, protests in the sense that it is something that the people wanted. So if we intend democracy as something that the people want, it has been democratic to a major extent. But it's also very true that one of the uh, major requests were related to um, to economic disadvantages and uh, the, the economic stagnation that characterized most of the uh, Arab countries at the time. And it still does to a major extent. Well, if we look at um, democratic indexes, for instance, we can see that 
there is no significant neuroelastic neuroelastic democratic process um neuroelastic democratic progress sorry uh tunisia is maybe one of the ex- exceptions even though um I mean, it's like the exception that proves the rule. Yeah, sort of, sort of, yeah. I mean, in, in Tunisia, the new constitution has been approved in 2014, and that's been a major achievement. But looking at data, for instance, on yard unemployment, it still remains very high in all the countries and also in Tunisia. And uh, the same can be said about government corruption. I mean, most of the Arab governments are still very much corrupted because they are uh they rely on um on a web on a clientelistic web and this is uh, a, a very characteristic of the uh arab governments and that's why i think that the solution sort of is the uh generational change because um it is argued that most of the people who protested during the arab spring were the youth and that's true uh but it's also true that um i mean the the question is whether uh, in the future the youth will continue uh the the to 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 maintain this clientelistic web that exists right now in the arab states or whether they will uh change their attitude and uh and approach democracy in a different way but if we look at the countries in general there is not no, there has not been any real process in terms of democracy any real progress in terms of democracy this is reminding me of of the story of russia after the fall of the soviet union uh in some very eerie ways right you had a sort of major push for a more uh, western approach to governance and capitalism um but then people you know very much distrusted and disliked the, the socioeconomic and political instability that existed and then you have, you know, a capable and clever, you know, sort of politician move in and say, you know, hey, I'll, I'll make sure everything remains stable and, and, you know, you life will be sort of normal at some pace and there will be some mech socioeconomic. So this was my question, right? Could you imagine a case where you had, a in the Arab context, a Putin-like figure move in and say, look, I can stabilize the country and I can do these things and, you know, things will work relatively normal there'll be some socioeconomic liberalization. Yeah, I agree too. I think that it's also, as you said before, it doesn't take a decade to build a democracy. Uh, but in the case of economic improvement, that's something that you can see way more quickly. So I think that it's, that it's as you say, it, it is possible that, that, that we could see something like that in many of the Europe state. Of course, it depends case by case, but... Uh, it is not time for democracy to for full democracy yet because they are not ready first of all and second of all it is something that you build is a process uh, us in europe and western state we have built democracy throughout the century so uh, it is impossible to see uh, concrete changes right now so i think that what we have is already a lot because it it, it indicates that people are uh, are disappointed and it's already something yeah i think that the two have historically at least in the west gone fairly well hand in hand, right? You had enough socioeconomic liberalization that you had civil society really come forward in a big way. You had education, you know, become much more, uh, you know, liberal with a, a small L, right? Like a, a liberalization of the education system where there is a lot more open thought and questions and, um, and uh, you know, less censorship on, on what can be discussed. So is just thoughts as we kind of move into the specific countries here then to keep in mind and for our listeners you know if you're interested in these things you know tweet at us at the intl scholar or you know tweet at the Curetia or column or myself or someone um i wanted to kind of move on and talk a little bit about syria specifically because just so much has happened in 10 years there um it's just a completely literally a completely different landscape and figuratively um so i column why don't you kind of take us through just the major events of, of the history of Syria in the last 10 years. I mean, it's a completely different world. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Syria is a little different because there is, at least with respect to, or as opposed to like Egypt and Tunisia, there is, I mean, there is this kind of sectarian element that has become so much more entrenched since the beginning of it. Like at least the the military and the, Alawite dominance in like the upper echelons we saw like the you know it was it was so much more of a it was there were debates in 2012 you know early early 
um, revolutionary times of like whether people should defect or not. But like ultimately the defections were incredibly low level. I mean, like this is a really, really cohesive and, and brutal, brutal uh, state structure. And they recognize, they, they know this. Like I said, there was a few defections, but it, it wasn't really big. So 2011, obviously in early 2011, starting in Tunisia and then Egypt and then spreading uh, the, the, each had the, Bouazizi lighting himself on fire was the big spark, right? But each country kind of had their own little one. And, and in Syria, it was uh, like uh, some, some young boys, it spray painted like your turn, doctor. Um, Assad being a former, um, was it dentist? Or eye doctor Ophthalmologist. <laughs> Ophthalmologist, yeah, that's the one. Uh, in London. Um, and side note, he's a big fan of Phil Collins. So that should show you, uh, that should tell you enough. Um, but uh, he... Yeah, they 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 were they were taken and their and their bodies returned mutilated and and initial peaceful protests you know that were cracked down brutally like I said with this with this state structure that only kind of knows one response. Um, we've seen we've seen the Assads, both his dad and the current one, just brutally brutally cracked down on its own population, um, and it became militarized and then it became a proxy conflict and then it became kind of focused on and i mean the whole kurdish issue is its own thing that is pretty unique to syria so it's just a much more complicated uh battlefield and it also is just in the, you know the hottest region in the middle east too so i mean yeah we saw the entrance of i mean so syria and iran uh syria and russia have been kind of historical allies right like this is not they entered the war in 2015 is is the big one but i mean like they've had relations going back decades and um and same same with iran too i mean i think the formal the formal iranian inter, uh, entrance was maybe 2013 but it was obviously earlier and maybe indirect more indirect but it was there and they are also kind of historical allies these these were and and syria is vital to iran's uh uh, Iran's uh, Hezbollah project in, in neighbor, neighboring Lebanon, right? So it's it's in Iran's benefit to have Syria uh, locked down and not um, under the control of maybe Sunni Islamists, for example, because then they can they have this uh, kind of um, uncontested uh, territory from Iraq, Syria to Lebanon, and, and it's a lot easier to just kind of uh, keep keep that in, in conventional their logic. Yeah. Yeah. How is this all? Exp I mean, I just wanted to just like throw out for the listeners how complex the international scene is now in in Syria specifically, and how has that ha affected the the sort of Arab Spring movement? I mean, they've just been through civil. They're still in really. It's this kind of civil war. There's proxy conflict going on at the same time. There's the Kurdish movement. What is left of the 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 desire for the Arab Spring? I mean, this is an open question for everybody, but where where are where is that feeling now is it gone is it absent is it you know sublimated what's going on i feel that uh, to discount the possibility of people uh taking to the streets again would be uh, i think would be wrong because hell 10 years ago nobody thought that people would uh, take to the streets to protest against the assad regime because i think i read it somewhere that although the war is coming to an end the arab spring is not so because people no longer have anything to lose with the way that the Assad regime has treated its citizens, especially with his desire to create this quote unquote useful Syria and the way that he's trying to institute a demographic change with the help of Russian and Iranian forces. And then Hezbollah has also come into the picture. People no longer have anything to lose. So I think they're going to try. They don't have the political space to sort of, you know, make sure that change does occur. But I don't think that they're going to give up because as of now, it's, they've laid their cards bare, right? They've, they've given it this all, they, all that they have right now is to fight and as much as they can till they no longer can afford to do that. So, I mean, Lucrezia, we've seen hundreds of thousands of Syrians leave Syria, many of them to, to Europe and to neighboring countries. Is the sort of fire of the Arab Spring, you know, it's still lit in, in for those people. I mean, if you, I've read many papers and surveys on this as well, you know, you see most of them still want to return. They, it's their home. They want to, um, you know, return to Syria one day and, 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 you know, sort of see and rebuild their homeland. But is this sentiment present among the refugee populace? Is this, 
you know, sort of in the background of their their minds as they're thinking about, you know, one day perhaps returning or not? Uh, well, I think so. I could use my Arabic teacher as an example. He is not living in Europe, he's living in Turkey, but uh, he's from Syria and yeah, he told me several times that his biggest wish is of course to come home, but this is, uh, I guess, the wish of many refugees. And uh, of course, as a dream is a major challenge. And we also have to consider that uh, the pandemic we had, which we have experienced this year has exacerbated the conditions of the civil war, not only in Syria, but also in Libya and, and Yemen. This is something we have to, uh, to take into account. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, a lot of refugees fled to Europe and um, indeed it, it is also uh, relevant to mention that one of the consequences of the Arab Spring has been that uh, although the protests, uh, as we said, have remained within the, the region, uh, it had consequences uh, on the whole world for the interconnectedness that characterize our centuries and uh, in Europe specifically, which is so, uh, which is a neighboring uh, continent, uh, there have been, uh, um, there has been the migration cr- uh, crisis, which has been uh, uh, also caused by the Arab Spring and by the um, by the, the the people from North Africa and the Middle East that were fled in their countries. But talking specifically about Syria, I think it's also relevant to mention that. Uh, right now, there still is the danger that the ISIL still takes lead because although it, um, um, I mean, through the last year it has launched several several attacks. Uh, although it officially collapsed, uh, it is not. Uh, it, it is still a risk, so we have to take it into account. I think. I wanted to talk about that as well before we move on. In Syria, especially, like you saw so many different ranks of, of young men and boys joining, you know, various different militant ranks, whether it's to oppose Assad or to, to join uh, terrorist movements. Um, the socioeconomic conditions, do you think that's the one of the principal drivers for that? I mean, I know that in, in different situations across the world, a lot of what drives young men and boys to fill the ranks of of these kinds of organizations is uh, a way to provide for their family or to secure, you know, some, some kind of protection. Is that, uh, do you think that's the primary driving force or is it more ideology? Yeah, well, I, I, I definitely like to, I, I, especially uh, for, for us based audiences, I, um, I, I always like to, or I, I always try to emphasize how these aren't, these don't like, these don't start off as kind of, sectarian protests against a you know sunni versus shia these aren't these aren't like inherent conflicts to people's everyday lives i don't think and they're manufactured and they're and they are expounded upon by outside forces and money and stuff yeah i feel like dignity dignity is kind of a centerpiece of a lot of these protests right so that might mean i just want to feed my family to some people and that might mean i, I want to be able to have a say in my government but like people just i mean people respond to their circumstances people just want to eat at the most at, at the very least and we are sometimes you hear some i mean you know some of the interviews of libyans who are like oh this is you know we want Gaddafi back this is all the us's fault it's like i mean i understand you know maybe it it's a, it, it can be a dangerous um uh, sentiment to wish for authoritarianism but it's an understandable one uh, people want stability and they want to live their lives and uh yeah i'd say material um needs kind of trump anything else uh, the, the region gets stereotyped pretty easily as these kind of like rabid warring populations or what have you. And I think that's totally false. Uh, so, yeah, no, I, I don't think your average street protester in Dara had like Iranians global ambitions on his mind when he or she <laughs> came out onto the street uh, protesting against the Assad. You know, they weren't thinking, oh, man, this might not be so good for Iran if we, uh, you know, like <laughs> it's, it was uh, it was much more about their their close circle and their community. Yeah, because I think what everyone has done is treat uh, Syria as some kind of a sectarian war where it's Shia versus Sunnis and there you bring in Kurds and then you bring in Christians. But as Callum said, a lot of it is just about your essential needs. How do you feed your family? How do you sustain at least a life of dig- of dignity? Because one of the core demands of the revolution, I think, across was, I think, work, freedom and dignity. Dignity took the center stage. And when people no longer had that, when it began to be stripped away from them to the point 
that it went right over their heads. They took to the streets. They thought it was finally time to demand change. And this was fundamental change that they wanted. They weren't demanding a radical transformation. They weren't demanding anarchy. They didn't want violence. But that's because the white com- conflict in itself became so layered. I think it just took the attention away from the root causes. And that's what made the conflict so much more worse and much more difficult to uh, resolve going ahead into 2021. Yes, I also totally agree on what you said. <laughs> the first thing you said, Cameron, because uh, uh, they, they really want basic and simple needs. Um, mostly because uh, even though the international community has reacted differently in in nearly every case to the uprisings, uh, depending on their national interest mostly, uh, what the Arab nationals wanted is just, as Kaldo mentioned, is just food security and the, the very basic needs, mostly because the balance of power in the region has not been yet established. So uh, the, I would say that the civil... Uh, society does not care about it much, especially right now that there are uh, major problems and concerns, especially on the economic side that they have to envisage. So I, I want to talk about that. I mean, the, we've got the US, Russia and sort of Turkey with an asterisk being in the region, but also now playing a much more outsized role. But I wanted to talk about Yemen briefly. Um, and those are also, I mean, this might be a good segue where there's lots of outside influence. And a lot of what is fueling the conflict is is the outside forces in both of those countries. What do you think, really, given all this outside influence, is really driving the conflict in Yemen then? I mean, I think Yemen's a country where everything that could go wrong already has. Like, there's been a refugee crisis, so and water shortages. Yeah, COVID-19, flash floods. We have people fleeing, IDPs. We've had all that. But I think one of the major... Uh, Follies that uh, the foreign actors have made is treated as some sort of a, a game, a sort of a, so it's just an anti-Iran sort of a war that they have made because of the Houthi factor. And I think that has just aggravated the problems because they feel that if they allow the Houthis to take a seat at the negotiating table, it will give um, Iran an advantage in this geostrategic competition and because Iran is already in this conflict with uh, Saudi Arabia, and then you have issues going on with uh, the outgoing uh, American administration. I mean, there are tons of issues. And I think another major problem that the uh, American administration created is designating the Houthis as a terrorist organization. Because, I mean, I'm not sure if it's a fair comparison, but in Afghanistan, that's exactly what they did, you know, trying to keep away a, a group that did exercise a considerable amount of influence. And but what happened is decades later they're sitting sitting across each other in Doha and they're negotiating. The problem is you can't just wish the Houthis would disappear into thin air. They are there. They're there to stay. They are exercising considerable influence. And I think what seventy eighty percent of the population lives under the and lives in the territories that are occupied by the Houthi forces. So just uh, not including them is a huge mistake. And I think what the uh, incoming administration could do is actually reverse that decision because I think it would go a long way because what you're doing is you're not really hurting the Houthis you're hurting the Yemenis who had who did not want this war in the first place and this is some sort of a collective punishment against a population who has just continued to suffer with no respite so uh, yeah I mean uh, since the Arab Spring since that what we're talking about um Yemen has been one of the of the of the countries in which the regime uh, didn't resist but it did because we had Saleh which died a couple of years ago who actually was still controlling the scene from uh, uh from Riyadh and uh, as a matter of fact what we have right now is sort of two conflicts which are separate but they aren't so in the north we had president Hadi uh, which is we can say the political inheritor of Saleh uh, who is fighting against the southern transitional government. And then in the south, we have uh, the Houthi who are fighting in a proxy war uh, because the Houthi are supported by Iran and they are fighting mostly against Saudi Arabia. Uh, as it is right now, we have uh, the new government which was born in December in Riyadh. So this is a, a pretty much a new and uh, a new thing. And it uh, it is a power sharing deal, which is baked by Saudi Arabia, 
Um, and uh, of course, we still don't know where this is going to lead. But uh, in April, Saudi Arabia uh, declared, a unil- declared its unilateral decision to, um, uh, uh, to decide a ceasefire because of the, uh, of the consequences of the COVID. But uh, I think that uh, so far there have not been, I mean, whether, whether the conflict in, in Yemen is going towards a resolution considering the fact that Saudi Arabia has decided for a ceasefire, uh, it, it largely depends on how things will go after COVID because at this point we have such a crisis that we have to think about uh, people who are dying, people who are suffering the, fam- the famine. Uh, afterwards, uh, we will see whether Saudi Arabia and uh, Iran will uh, will we, we, sort of stop the proxy war, but this is not very likely in the near future. Uh, in every conflict in the Middle East, I think that since they are supported and backed by foreign states and foreign powers, the very uh, the very first step should be to find an agreement between these powers, and because otherwise there is no way to to find a real solution on the ground. So this is true in um, in Yemen between. Uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran, and, and Iran, but this is also true in Libya. Uh, so uh, we're talking about the GNA, which is baked by Russia and Iran, but also, um, but also, uh, uh, but also Turkey, which is baking the GNA. So I wanted to to jump in and say you had mentioned right at the beginning there, and I wanted to kind of underscore this for listeners: the for, sort of origin of the conflict stems from, to a large degree, stems from the Arab Spring where you had a kind of civil war erupt over the authoritarian leadership, which caused, well, didn't cause, but, but enabled foreign powers to then get involved in that process, in the conflict between who's going to have control now, um, and then that, that spiral. So when you talk about sort of a layered conflict, where there's the original conflict that's still kind of ongoing and then it's been layered with foreign interests and the who then has control over the government and what that government looks like and that's pulled in actors as diverse as as you say you know iran and saudi arabia but also russia and turkey and the united states and europe i mean in libya you have you know sort of even france tacitly supporting um one side while italy is um you know much more directly vocally supporting um the un-backed um, you know, transitional government. Um, and so for countries like Libya and Yemen, what does the Arab Spring really look like 10 years on? Is this, is it any more even about the Arab Spring? Is it really about these issues still? Um, or is it completely kind of been derailed? Like that conversation is now to be had, as you say, after the sort of geopolitical scene has been calmed, or is this still very real in the minds and hearts of people this is an interesting question because as you said it's sort of layers of conflicts over layers of conflict so we have on the base this this protest which were mainly discontent that developed in some cases into a civil war so the question is whether uh, under the civil war layer which also has another layer which is foreign power involvement there is self discontent and i will say that I mean, yes, of course, because the situation has not improved at all. And uh, of course, whether the discontent will persist depend on the resolution of the civil wars, which is probably not very close. But I believe that in every conflict there is this trigger moment when you, you know, uh, you, you reach the bottom and you, you can just go up. And I think that, the, that COVID-19 has been... Helpful on one hand, in this because once you reach that point of economic uh, stagnation, but in in this case, it's a true crisis which uh, we are all feeling. But of course, in countries which are in conflict, it is felt way more. Uh, then you can just go up. So probably it could be on one hand uh, the, the 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 trigger that makes uh, that paves the way for a resolution of the various conflict. Right. So all sides are feeling it in extreme fashion and so it kind of maybe is the catalyst for us as you've mentioned you know in Yemen it's already caused a ceasefire we don't know how long it'll last or if it, if it's really properly you know enforced throughout the, the the rest of the crisis if that forces people to come to the table um or not but 
will definitely be interesting to watch all of this as we move forward um, in the next 10 years as well. I wanted to kind of zoom out again, if you will, and, and say, so on balance, you know, in, across the region, has the Arabs, is, was this a necessary event or could it have played out differently? How else, you know, might you have seen sort of a, a push to overcome um, the authoritarianism on a sort of a popular scale, if you will? And then we'll kind of look at the, the, the next 10 years and what might be to come as we close out. Yeah, it, it could have, you know, I, and going back to the whole, I mean, each country is so vastly different and unique in its power structure and, and, and civilian demographics too. Uh, I, something that um, I feel like is surprisingly not as talked about as much is like the, the, the role that trade unions played in the Tunisian and Egyptian, um, like the early day and, and the early days of the, the, the revolutions there and the roles that they played in, in at least in transitioning Tunisia to what it is today. Like we don't see super strong civil, like non uh, civil and secular institutions all across the Middle East. They've either been co-opted or they just don't exist. And I mean, this is one of the reasons that it's it's like I mean, Islamists are so much more uh, successful. They have these organizing bases and funds and stuff. Um, but if there were more civilian or I mean, like we're seeing these student elections in in Lebanon right now at AUB. And that's a really good, like all these, these secular parties are winning across the board. I mean, like the sentiment is there, but like if, if the infrastructure for like, you know, uh, maybe uh, just providing some of, kind of backbone, so, right, to exactly. Yeah. Whether that be trade unions or whether that be any other sort of kind of club or organization where people can meet and talk about these issues and provide organizational backbones, like you said, uh, these would have gone many different ways. I also think. Like, you know, in, in Yemen, it's, yeah, they got the, uh, Saleh like left. Right. And he put his second man in and, and, and the U S I think kind of wanted to repeat that in Syria, but that's just a total misunderstanding of the system in Syria. You can't just take Assad out and then put some back in. I mean, like the system is different there than it is in Yemen. You can't just think of these regions as, uh, or, or these countries as all kind of the same setup, just an authoritarian top down, you know, it's not the case. They're, they're, they're different. Someone I wanted to, to focus on that for a second you were saying or we were talking about this as sort of civil society as being crucial as this sort of backbone do you think that's why the arab spring has come to to the place it is today in so many different places it's really the the presence or absence of civil society structures is what either turned the revolution into sort of a, a some some semblance of a success in some cases where you have a more democratic society now and you have some some efforts, or at least the the understanding that socioeconomic liberalization and, and opening and mobility is the goal, or you just sort of had mass unrest and then you had people in powers, um, you know, sort of fill that vacuum to provide some sort of backbone in, in terms of a supra conflict to the original. You know, I'm so glad uh, that I did pay attention back in uh, during my postgrad classes because this is exactly what was discussed. <laughs> <laughs> Briefly, I remember. I, I remember we were discussing how Tunisia already had a strong uh, foundation for uh, a civil society and for uh, civil society activism as opposed to other countries like Egypt. You know, where even though there were organizations present, they were controlled by the state. So there wasn't going to be any effective change instituted in Egypt the way there were in Tunisia. Moreover, uh, the way that uh, I feel that the situation in Egypt could not have played out any differently because of the role that the military does play in Egypt. Uh, as opposed to Tunisia, Egypt is uh, controlled by the military across the board. So I don't feel that could have gone away, gone any different. But Tunisia, because of the strong civil society that was already in place and with the role that the quartet later on played, because after the assassination of the two secular politicians, I think sometime in 2014, it looked like things were going to fall apart. But then the civil society was able to come together and you know, decide that we were not going to go down that route. We were not going down the route where we're going to engage in an armed conflict with each other. So I think Tunisia had a kickstart right there from the very beginning, and that's just what helped propel it to where it is now, as opposed to other countries which did not have a civil society, which did not have civil society groups. I mean, even if they were, they were simply there on paper. They had no real power. They had no uh, strong institutional frameworks. There were no, uh, 
you know, efficient leaders in place. So I think those were the problems that were associated with the rest of the countries impacted by the Arab Spring, as opposed to Tunisia, which, which I think, I think that's one of the primary reasons why it has been able to sustain that democratic momentum for so long without uh, breaking too many sweats. Because it, and there have been points where you felt that things were going to fall apart in Tunisia as well. But they were somehow able to rise through the factionalism. I think more so, it's not just a civil society. I think you also have to acknowledge the contribution that the Islamist parties like Inada played. Because they saw the way that factionalism had torn Libya to shreds at that point. Factionalism, they, so they decided that factionalism was not going to do the same to their country. They were going to be able to come together. And Inada did compromise on a lot of issues uh, when it comes you know, to putting together legislation. So just one, I think, in 2017, uh, the government passed a bill which legalized the right of Muslim women to say marry outside their faith. And for Inada, an Islamist party, that went against a, a, one of their core beliefs. So I think Tunisia did have a lot of advantage going into this Arab Spring. Unfortunately, the other countries did not. Would that be kind of your interpretation as well, Lucrezia? Like you have uh, uh, the civil society would kind of form this uh, fora where there was room for the conversation to take place. I think that whether civil society conversation happens is uh, also very dependent on context and on country to country and also on how the civil society is divided within that country. Because although in, uh, uh, I mean, in many Arab states we can see that the civil society is itself divided also in tribal terms, uh, but in, in most of the cases, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with Saman on that in the sense that uh, if Tunisia had the outcome that it had, and uh, I mean, we have to recall, it's not the best outcome it could be because there still is discontent, but it's for sure the best outcome in the Middle East uh, so far, uh, followed maybe by Morocco, um, is precisely because of this type of civil society involvement. And uh, again, is this something that uh, as democracy uh, as a whole, the country is have to build because if the civil society has not been uh, used to have a voice so far, it is very hard to 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 start having a voice all of a sudden. So uh, this is also a process, and uh, I believe we're in, at the very beginning of it. So my forecast is that the Earth Spring in itself is not over. I will be looking at these questions as we move on. I'm I hate to cut the conversation off here. We definitely have kind of run out of time for this episode. But before we go, I wanted everybody to kind of give their uh, their favorite thing that, that did happen that was a positive across the region in the last 10 years. I guess I'm just going to, f- I'll, I'll focus a little more micro on Lebanon specifically. I, I was living in Tripoli, the northernmost city. And since their revolution of 2019, they've had these little like uh, local people's councils. They would meet every single night and they would talk about issues and they would invite guests and lawyers and they'd come and sit in the city square and there'd be a, there'd be a public kitchen feeding people who couldn't have it and, or couldn't, couldn't eat because this is very real in Tripoli. It's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's a huge city packed into a small place and there's a lot of poverty, but these, these, there's this kind of sense of social solidarity that I really hadn't experienced the last time I was there. And I thought that was really beautiful. What would you say, Saman? I know that you're, you're very much like, gonna dive right in most of the time and tell tell everybody this is exactly what's wrong with the situation but i'm going to challenge you to come up with something (laughs) truly positive that's happened over the last 10 years okay so i think i'll uh, stick to tunisia where i feel some of the major developments that did take place because women were say already uh, quite progressive if you compare them to uh, the situation in libya or in yemen but they sort of built on that and they emerged as some of the biggest victors uh, of the Jasmine Revolution because they now have the legal uh, right to sort of run in the presidential elections. There is a gender parity, like a 50% quota is mandatory when you uh, put together the list for the parliamentary elections. They now have the right to uh, stake equal claim to the family inheritance, which I feel is crucial. You know, in a way, they did break the ground in a way that did sort of break that glass ceiling that was there for the longest time and able to build on that momentum. So hopefully things will get better, but that's all that you can get out of me. I mean, I'd rather look at the challenges. Honestly, (laughs) way more interesting. (laughs) 
So, so if if tomorrow all of the challenges you know that we just talked about miraculously you know got solved, you would still be looking for the dark cloud in the of sky. Of course, of course. Man, that's just me. That's just me. <laughs> all right, Lucrezia, show us show us the shining light through the uh, the cloud of doom we've just passed through. <laughs> well, of course. Um, uh, let me think. If we if we have to point to something positive uh, about the Earth Spring, I will point to music and to the. Um, to the very recent songs that have been produced in many Middle Eastern countries, but I'm referring mostly to Morocco and Tunisia, not because those are the only ones, but because those are the only ones I know about, who have produced amazing uh, rap and uh, and different kind of, of music who are related to, um, to, 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 to opposing the government. Most of them have been banned and there have been several news of... Uh, people who were jailed because of producing this music. But if you listen to the song, you can really feel the, uh, you know, the feeling of the Aura Spring, even 10 years later. And uh, then, uh, let's say more uh, on the paper, a very important uh, thing that happened recently, uh, which we cannot mention, are the Abram Hackers, even though they're not directly related to the Aura Spring, they're still a very important development for the Middle East. And uh, we still don't know where they will bring and we still don't know where, uh, whether, I mean, themselves, what they will consist in, considering that now the administration is changing and they've been promoted mostly by Trump, but uh, they also are a very relevant change and a positive one. Awesome. We'll continue to be talking about the Middle East and uh, Northern Africa. Uh, on this podcast if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe uh, share it with your friends on social media you can find us on twitter Um, we'll have links to everybody uh, in this episode in the description um, as well as to Lucrezia's recent paper Um, and I'm gonna completely forget the name of the think tank you've published with Uh, Yari but I would also like to, to, to send you the link to the song I was talking about songs Yeah, we'll put that in the link for the description as well. Um, But for now, from Lucrezia in Rome, from Callum in Seattle, from Saman in Uttar Pradesh, and myself in Cincinnati, Ohio, it's goodbye. Goodbye.